Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today, our guest is Dr. John Potts III. He is the current Vice President for Surgical Accreditation at the ACGME. He is uh, an adjunct professor of surgery at the University of Texas, Houston, where he was the program director for 21 years and the vice chair of education for 17. He has held leadership roles in all of, in all of the surgical accrediting institutions, and his CV certainly speaks for itself with regards to his dedication for surgical education. Dr. Potts, thank you for being with us today on Behind the Knife. It's my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I was wondering if we could just start off by, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, um, you know, why you decided to go into surgical training, and specifically what led you uh, to spend so much of your career focused on surgical education. Sure. Well, um, I actually grew up in a tiny town in Oklahoma, uh, about a thousand people. Uh, went to high school in a slightly larger city of Stillwater, uh, 20,000 probably at the time. I uh, began thinking about medicine uh, actually when I had a an operation on my wrist that uh, was the result of a football injury. And uh, it turns out that my grandmother had always wanted my father to be a surgeon or to be a physician as well. And so those two kind of blended together and I started down the path of uh, pursuing a, a medical degree. Um, I did it in a strange way in that I uh, majored in history, but, but that's, uh, <laughs> that's another story. Uh, anyway, I, I ended up in medical school uh, at the University of Oklahoma. And the story of going into surgery is uh, one that I've told many times to, to medical students. Um, I uh, turns out I had oh six or eight friends or fraternity brothers, others who were a year or two or three ahead of me in medical school. And by coincidence, they all ended up going into primary care. Uh, now, we had the option of choosing the order of our rotations uh, for our third year of medical school. So leading into the third year, I asked each of them for advice about what to go into, and every one of those guys, they were all guys who uh, had gone into primary care, all told me to do surgery first, and I said, why? And they said, well, because you're going to have six weeks off before you begin the third year of medical school, You'll um, so you'll be rested up and ready to go, and they're going to work you to death, and they're all jerks. They don't care about the patients. They just want to cut and sew. And they're horrible people. So if you take it first and get it done, you'll never have to deal with surgeons again in your life. So I took their advice. I took surgery first. And about the second day of my very first rotation in my third year, I decided I wanted to be a surgeon. And I've never looked back on that decision. Um, now the surgical education part of it, uh, you know, that was just part of what we did as residents. And, uh, as it turns out, when I went to the university of Texas, 
uh, Houston Medical School. I uh, was not recruited as a surgical educator, but about a month after I got there, maybe two months after I got there, we got a letter that our program was on probation. And the chairman at the time fired the program director who had uh, been directing the program and made me program director, even though I didn't know most of the faculty members yet, didn't know most of the residents yet, didn't even have a Texas license yet. And I was suddenly the program director. So I had to jump in with both feet. And I really liked this surgical education stuff, found it very uh, rewarding, very important, and really began to devote most of my energy to that. So that's, that's the story in short. So how far out of training were you when you were put in this position of being the program director? Um, out of residency, about, um, I guess, uh, seven years, eight years out of fellowship, two less. Wow. So we're going to jump right into our dissection of the day where we want to delve deeper into controversies in surgical education. So uh, the first thing that we have to talk about are the duty hours. Are they helping us or are they hurting us? Yes, they are. <laughs> <laughs> I think in um, I, I think they are doing both. Um, um, of course, they came into force with the uh, uh, common program requirements that were first uh, circulated in 2003. It was, I think, the biggest change in surgical education that had ever occurred at one moment up until that time. Uh, as you know, it was, it was um, very difficult to prog for programs to adjust to that. It was very difficult for surgeons to adjust to that. Um, I think, um, like I say, I, I, it's a blessing and a curse. I think uh, if I wanted to characterize the curse of it, I would say that uh, the one thing that um, I find a little troublesome about the duty hours requirements, the way that they're done, is that one size fits all. Mm -hmm. And surgeons are just not the same as pediatricians, as hematologists, as anesthesiologists, and emergency room doctors. We're just not. Um, um, so I think the one size fits all may be the most um, unpleasant part of the duty hours requirements. I will also say, though, that I think um, they have, um, I think they're very necessary. I think they're very necessary for a number of reasons. Um, uh, the public face of graduate medical education almost demands that these days. I just don't think the public would put up with residents working the 120 hours that we used to. Now, I will also say, uh, and I always rush to say this when we're talking about duty hours, yes, we worked 120 hours a week in the old days, 
But today's residents work harder in their 80 hours than we worked in our 120. We had a lot of patients in the hospital who didn't really need to be in the hospital. You know, in those days, we kept patients in the hospital for five days after a cholecystectomy and three days after a hernia repair and things like that. So we had a lot of patients on the service, but they weren't sick. Uh, today, you've got to be sick to get in the hospital. And the requirements for documentation, the, the EMR and so forth, have greatly uh, increased the work of the resident. Also, uh, you know, just that, that turnover of patients every day. Not only do you have to be sick to be in the hospital, but there's much greater turnover of patients on a day-to-day -day basis. So on balance, I think uh, surgery residents work a lot harder today than we did, uh, even though they nominally work, um, you know, 33% fewer hours. Um, uh, so in that respect, I think uh, the limitation is a good thing. I just, I just don't think residents could work 120 hours uh, given the um, incredible pace and intensity of, of residency today. Now, have you noticed? It wouldn't be right for a patient or anyone else. In your own personal experience, have you, have, since the implementation of the 80-hour work week, have you noticed a difference in the quality of the residents that are being produced, just in your own opinion? I, I, I think... There are some issues with the product of residency programs today. Um, I don't think it's due to the duty hours. There, there are a lot of factors. I don't think the duty hours is even in the top 10 of those factors. What are those changes that you've seen and what are the factors then? There's quite a list and I, I, I'm not, um, I'm going to address these sort of in the order that you, that they come to mind, not necessarily in terms of greatest importance. I think medical students are much less prepared to go into residency today than they were even in 2003 when the duty hours were started. Um, there are a lot of medical students who have, the vast majority of medical students, do not take overnight call in-house on their surgical rotations. Many of them have never taken in-house call, even on um, uh, senior electives. Um, so I don't, you know, they're, they're, they're ill-prepared from that respect. They're ill-prepared in that most institutions don't let them make entries into the, into the medical record. So they haven't written orders. They haven't even written progress notes, many of them. Uh, um, again, they're just ill-prepared to come into residency. So that's one thing. Um, uh, for a number of reasons, I think that um, the level of supervision of residents today is inappropriate. And um, uh, let me let me just describe that a little bit. When I say it's inappropriate, I don't mean that they're under-supervised. Not at all. Indeed, the fact is the residents are, in my opinion, over-supervised today. 
Um, that's come about for a lot of reasons. Um, medical legal concerns, patient safety concerns, uh, concerns about um, uh, publicly reported quality metrics, uh, so forth and so on. But the bottom line is that residents, um, um, I believe, are over-supervised today. I, 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 um, a lot of people talk about lack of autonomy of residents. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't utilize that term, autonomy. Uh, I like to talk about appropriate supervision. And certainly for a brand-new first-year resident, uh, appropriate supervision means someone senior right over his or her shoulder all the time to make sure that they're doing the right things. That is appropriate supervision. At the other end of the um, uh, time in graduate medical education, though, as one prepares to enter independent practice, appropriate supervision, um, in my estimation, would be uh, a much, much more hands-off approach, allowing that resident independent decision-making, independent operating, independent patient care, um, certainly uh, indirectly supervised by the attending surgeon, but um, um, quite indirectly, <laughs> you know, not always um, uh, having one's hand held by the attending surgeon. I, I get around to a number of surgery programs in the country, and I always ask the, the chief residents, whether or not they've, uh, you know, how much they've independently operated. Mm -hmm. And there are unfortunately chief residents nearing graduation who have never spent a moment in the operating room without an attending surgeon there. Yeah. I just don't know how they're supposed to be prepared for independent practice when someone is always there with them. Um, to me, that's that's the biggest change in um, uh, surgical education, and the biggest deficit that we face in surgical education is that lack of appropriate supervision. So you talked about medical students kind of coming in ill prepared, um, and that you, you know, in the context of duty hours. What's your take on like the graduating chief residents? Um, after the duty hours got, you know, were placed, has that affected the quality of the surgeons we were making? Again, I, I, I think my opinion is that the duty hours, uh, yes, may have had some small adverse effect on the quality of the surgeons being produced. I don't think it is a major factor. I think the major factor is lack of appropriate supervision. Mm -hmm. Our next question for you is uh, talking about shift work. Um, you know, uh, ED works on shift work, and now most of the EGS services and trauma services across the nation has kind of starting to adopt the same shift work model. Do you think that it fits with surgery and the other 
uh, surgical services besides trauma service? You're not asking the easy questions, are you? Um, the, top, the title of this, of this discussion is Controversies in Surgical Education. <laughs> I get it. I get it. <laughs> They're going to be some um, tough. You know, it's, it's certainly not the historic model of the surgeon. The historic model of the surgeon is if he or she operated on a patient, they managed uh, every moment of that patient's care. And I do think that the uh, shift work tends to... Uh, I don't really like this term, but I think the the listeners will know what I mean when I say it, it diminishes the resident's ownership of the patient, that sense of personal responsibility for the patient. I just I just don't know any way that it could not do that. And we know that every time that there's a handoff, uh, there's the opportunity for lost information uh, that could be detrimental to the care of the patient. So I, I'm, yes, I have some concern about, um, you know, very specific shifts as far as that goes. Um, at the same time, I understand the the practical realities, and uh, one simply cannot work 24 hours a day, seven days a week on a busy trauma service, a busy EGS service, and so forth. So while I've got concerns about it. I recognize that it's a reality, and so uh, going forward, what we need to do is just uh, learn the um, learn and and uh, invoke uh, the best methods for maintaining uh, patient continuity and the best methods for the residents uh, feeling that uh, level of, of personal responsibility to each patient. You know, when we talk about you know, having to, residents having, you know, specific hours that they're in, in the hospital. Uh, we've already talked about that. When we talk about um, uh, this kind of loss of autonomy or uh, this improper or um, inappropriate supervision, um, you know, what comes to mind is, is talking about these uh, entrusted um, professional activities. Professional activities. Yeah, these mm-hmm. EPAs. What, what's your view of them? You know, how do we how do we incorporate those into a, a training program? Well, um, <clears throat> as you know, at least in in general surgery, uh, the American Board of Surgery is currently uh, testing in something over twenty programs. Their first five uh, EPAs. These are these are fairly general uh, uh, EPAs. Um, so I, I would say we don't have a lot of data in general surgery. I think, um, um, you know, I, I, I can't say anything bad about EPAs. I, I think that they are um, uh, going to be a part of the shift toward competency-based residency education. Um, uh, what's What's... Interesting to me, and one of the comments I always make about EPAs is that uh, in so many ways, uh, they're really sort of back to the future. Um, And by that, I mean that, um, you know, 30 plus years ago when I was training, um, as as an intern, 
you knew what each of your medical students was capable of doing, and you entrusted that student to do those things. As a junior or senior resident, you knew what your intern was capable of doing or your junior resident was capable of doing, and you entrusted that individual to do those things. Now, there was no formal um, mechanism for either uh, demonstrating that level of proficiency or for documenting that level of proficiency, but you knew who could do what, and you entrusted the individuals to do those things. Uh, this, you know, the the um, uh, current mechanism of of entrustable professional activities uh, really really formalizes something that's been around in surgical education, graduate medical education for a long, long time. So I, you know, I, I, we don't really have much data in surgery, but I, I think they will generally be good things. I, I'm not sure that they're going to, uh, by themselves, move the ball down the field a whole lot um, toward uh, competency-based resident education. And, you know, along the lines of both of these two topics that we just talked about, um, you know, one of the solutions that is always posed is um, including more APPs, so nurse practitioners, physician assistants, into the residency programs to take some of those administrative burdens off of the residents. However, um, I'm sure in many surgical programs, the PAs and Ps come in because they're within the surgery department with an expectation that part of their time is going to be operative. And there, there tends to be um, in some places, you know, that struggle between uh, having the PA in the OR or having the PA do clinic or um, other sort of floor work to take some of that burden off of the residents. So that's part one of my question is, what are your thoughts on how should we be utilizing our APP colleagues? And then the second question that arises in institutions where they have a uh, PA or NP school, those students rotate clinically through with other medical students. So should they be getting just the same clinical experience or, you know, how as a surgery resident, should I be saying, well, the medical student should get first preference to get to the operating room or to uh, take care, like see this consult or, you know, is it all equal at that stage? And well, you're quite right that um, I'll call them um, advanced care providers, so to include um, PAs, nurse clinicians, and so forth, advanced care providers. Um, um, while hypothetically they would uh, reduce the workload of residents, and, and probably do reduce the workload of residents, they do um, sometimes stand in the way of resident education in part because of what you said about their role in the operating room. Um, they, um, if, if nothing else, often um, replace the experience of a junior resident simply assisting in the operating room and seeing those operations before being put in a position of attempting to do them. 
but even in even in uh, care of the patient on uh, the wards, uh, the, the advanced care providers often um, stand in the way of resident learning because the residents are doing what residents do. They rotate through those services for a month, two months, three months at a time. The advanced care providers are there on a permanent basis and therefore have developed um, an understanding of the way the attending surgeons want things done. They've developed a rapport with the attending surgeons. And the end result is that the residents are often uh, excluded from the decision-making process in the care of the patients, even on the ward. So it's 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 both in the operating room, on the wards, and and I guess I would add to that uh, in the clinics, in the very important part of uh, decision-making about who gets an operation, uh, who doesn't get an operation. So yeah, I think they can very much. Um, uh, while they may decrease the workload in some ways of, of residents, they can also diminish the education of residents. Uh, uh, forgive me, I, I don't mean to be um, uh, evasive here, but I, it's, I really don't think it's appropriate for me to give an opinion on exactly how those individuals uh, should be educated. So I'm, I'm going to leave that one alone. Um, what I would say is, though, that when an advanced care provider is, is hired by a hospital or by a department uh, in which graduate medical education occurs, there should be very, very clear depiction of responsibilities, lines of authority, and so forth, such that they don't stand between the um, the resident and the attending surgeon and don't stand in the way of a good surgical education. Kind of switching gears now, um, what's your take on the FES, FLS, MOC, all these examinations? Do you see them as a money-making scheme? They are extremely expensive for surgical residents, or do you actually view them as educational tools? Before answering the question, let me just point out one thing that may not be um, absolutely crystal clear to all the listeners. FLS, FES, even ATLS are requirements of the American Board of Surgery for certification. They are not requirements of the ACGME. They are not in any way uh, mentioned in the program requirements. So these are these are uh, requirements that have put in been put in place by the American Board of Surgery over the past several years. Now, having said that, I do think they have value. I do think they have value. They, I think, help ensure that there are not major gaps in a resident's education about laparoscopic surgery, about endoscopic surgery, uh, about um, initial management of the trauma patient. I think they are good things in that respect. It is unfortunate that they are as expensive as they are. Uh, but um, 
again, going back to the uh, body that requires those, the American Board of Surgery, uh, the American Board of Surgery doesn't make a penny off those um, uh, various examinations. doesn't make a cent off of those things. So, you know, do I think they're good? Yes, it's unfortunate they're expensive, but uh, ACGME does not require them, and the board does not profit from them. So we have uh, one more tough question, and I promise we'll move on to some easy questions. <laughs> but um, the next question has to do with uh, gender and diversity. Uh, you know, this is increasingly more scrutinized, and um, it's it's been a struggle for a lot of programs. What? How do we maintain? Um, I guess what's the best way when you're looking at your academic program to ensure that you're building into it uh, diversity um, when it, with, with regard to ethnicity, with regard to um, gender? Uh, how do you do that? How do you maintain quality while you do that? Um, and why is that important? Well, the last question is the easiest one to answer. Why is it important? Um, it's important because surgeons, half the patients that surgeons treat are female. <laughs> and we have today about 36 or 37 percent females in our programs. Um, and as you know, the, the data clearly reflects the fact that um, there are not as many female professors, there are not as many female associate professors, even assistant professors, as there are male. Uh, and the leadership positions in many organizations uh, are still dominated by, I'll just say, males, but largely white males. Um, I, I was um, asked a similar question in a program that I visited a few months ago, and the, and the question was put to me uh, is, is, you know, has there been or should there be or will there be a Me Too moment in surgery in terms of uh, gender opportunity? And I, I just don't, I don't see it as a moment. It just, it cannot occur as a moment. First, we'd have to get to uh, gender equity in the residence. We're not there. And then the careers of those individuals has to mature um, to the point that any of them, male or female, become associate professors, become professors, become chairs, program directors, and so forth, become officers in organizations. Uh, that Those things don't happen uh, early on. So it's going to take several years uh, even even once we reach equity in terms of the residents, if we ever do, it would take several years thereafter before uh, there could be equity in leadership positions between the genders. But but we do treat fifty percent fifty percent of the patients we treat or more are females, and that alone uh, is a good aim at having. Uh, 50% uh, uh, female surgeons. Uh, likewise with ethnic diversity. The, um, the vast majority of our programs are still dominated by Caucasians um, um, in, um, across uh, surgical specialties. 
Um, you know, there are um, roughly, I, as I recall, about 25% Asian uh, residents, uh, which is disproportionate to the population. We do not have nearly enough African-American or uh, Hispanic uh, residents um, uh, to meet the, the the population of the United States. Now, that said, the um, the um, um, ethnic diversity of surgical residents, and here I'm speaking across all surgical specialties, roughly approximates uh, the uh, potential applicant pool, meaning graduates, at least of AAMC, um, or LCME-accredited medical schools. Uh, the, gen- the ethnic diversity is close to that of the medical school graduates. So to make a significant change in that uh, has to go back way before medical school, um, getting people uh, pointed in the direction of medical school, helping prepare them for medical school, getting them into and through medical school. Yeah, there's a there's a long way to go there. There are reasons to do, to have uh, both ethnic and gender diversity. Uh, we're a long way from either of those goals. And I, I, I'll tell you, unfortunately, unfortunately, unlike the, the um, gender diversity, you know, we've it's been slow, but there's been an increase in the percentage of female surgical residents, well, really for as long as that's been tracked, that's, that's continued to increase. There has not been an increase in diversity, ethnic diversity, of surgical residents over the past decade. Those numbers have just hardly budged. And again, in part, that's, that's due to the um, uh, potential applicant pool, as well as other reasons. So we have to go back well before residency, well before medical school, um, before any significant dent can be made, particularly in the ethnic diversity. Well, thank you for going through those controversial questions with us, Dr. Potts. Um, We're going to jump into our final five now. These are just some questions for our listeners to get to know you a little more personally. Um, So our first question for you, what uh, book are you currently reading? God's Hotel. I haven't heard of that one. What's a, that about? Well, it's a book about a, a public hospital in the San Francisco area and uh, some of the changes that have come about in that hospital through, quote, modernization, close quote, of care and payment systems and so forth. Uh, but the um, position of the author, uh, who, who is not a surgeon, is that... Um, uh, all the reasons why we originally went into medical school are still applicable. The, the personal touch with patients, really sitting um, with the patient, holding the patient's hand, understanding uh, uh, the patient helps one better diagnose and better treat uh, the patients. Maybe it doesn't have, excuse me, as much um, applicability in surgery as it does in internal medicine, but but I do think that the values expressed by this individual are are sound. Excellent. I'll just check that one out. I haven't heard that. Uh, number two, uh, do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what uh, kind of music do you like to listen to? Uh, 
<laughs> well, now you remember, I, I uh, retired from the operating room about six years ago. But yes, I religiously listened to music in the operating room. And I like both types. What, both types? Yeah, country and Western. <laughs> well played. Uh, well, that's actually, if anyone has not seen or met Dr. Potts, he has some very nice cowboy boots in his collection. <laughs> um, so our next question, if you were to compete in the Olympics, whether winter or summer, and it doesn't have to be a sport you actually play, what event would you like to do? Well, uh, what you may not know is that uh, I actually uh, did go to undergraduate school on a track scholarship, and uh, I was nowhere near competing for the Olympics, <laughs> but I had many friends who did compete in the Olympics, well, both in, in track and field, but also in uh, wrestling, oddly enough, uh, because our our uh, school uh, was quite prominent in in freestyle wrestling. Uh, what would I want to do? Um, I, you know, I guess um, I've always really admired individuals in the decathlon. Uh, ten events. Um, now, those all happen to be track and field events, obviously. Uh, the world that I know best, but um, decathlon. All right. Uh, number four, what's your favorite movie? Boy, on what day? Um, or how about a genre of movies? <laughs> that that doesn't that really doesn't even help. I mean, I I don't know. I I love the Godfather series. I loved Apocalypse Now, Casablanca. I mean, I I, I love a lot of the old movies. Uh, I I don't I don't know that I could name one favorite. I love Gone with the Wind. You know, I mean, technically it was when you look back at it today, the special effects and so forth were horrible, but it it was. You know, one of the first uh, color movies and so forth, and and it tells a story about the greatest struggle in our nation's history from the eyes of at least uh, one segment of the population and their experience therein. Um, I, you know, I I love a lot of movies. I don't know that I could pick one favorite. So our last question for you, if you could go back in time, first day of intern year, what advice would you give yourself? What advice would I give myself? Or the easier question, Wait, if you if you could give advice to interns starting now, like what advice would you give to an intern on day one of residency? Well, that's a little bit easier. Um, learn every lesson that you can learn and know that no one, no one not your senior resident, not your chief resident, not your attending, not the nurse who calls you at 3 a.m. No one is out to make your day bad. They are out to make you a better doctor and to take better care of the patients. Excellent. Well, Dr. Potts, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being with us and uh, you know answering some of these difficult questions in the world of surgical education. Um, and thanks for uh, being on Behind the Knife. It's very much my pleasure. Thank you again for the invitation. Until next time, dominate the day.